Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of the galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Brandon Allinger, author of The Art of Ralph McQuarrie and Star Wars Costumes, the original trilogy, as well as COO of Prop Store. I really loved this conversation, diving into his work, his research, books that never happened, and the upcoming Anthony Daniels auction. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 155, Brandon Allinger. I want to start, I always like saying like, where did you first watch Star Wars? Because obviously having those kind of movies influence you, you know, in your career and in your life. Was it impactful from the get-go or what was kind of your early, early experiences? Well, I definitely grew up as a Star Wars fan. I actually don't think that I can tell you like the single inception point of it all. It's just in my memory, it's just always kind of there. Um, I was born in 83, so obviously the year of Return of the Jedi. So I wasn't really on the kind of first wave of, the, you know, like the kids who saw it in the theater at age seven and such. Um, but, you know, it was just very much there with like friends, older brothers who had the toys and, you know, even I sort of remember like as a kid in the late 80s, it was just like, I don't know, it was on television. And once it was on television, we, we recorded to VHS and then it was just there and you would just, you knew it, you would watch it, you were, in, you were into it, you know, even though in general, Star Wars fans would say that was like a quiet time for Star Wars, late 80s, early 90s, but it, it was still there. And I just I just fell in love with it as as so many people of you know that era did and other things of the era as well you know I love the Indiana Jones films um, when the first Batman movie Michael Keaton came out in 1989 that was a huge one for me uh, Ghostbusters but the the movies and the cartoon at the time it's a big thing in the 80s so I loved all of it but Star Wars always number one and uh, you know I think so much of like the interest today it's a combination of both the nostalgia for that era but also sort of a more mature, more adult appreciation for everything to do with those films and both sort of just the quality of the, the films and the stories themselves, the, the appreciation for the achievement of, of creating them and getting them done and what they meant to movies overall, you know? Um, and I think it's those two things together, the nostalgia and the appreciation that makes it so powerful. There's, there's a lot of Star Wars fans without like Star Wars, they've seen Star Wars, they watch it, and they, that then that's that's the end of their interaction with, with movies, which is totally valid and fine. But you took it a step further, especially in kind of that dark period. I was actually doing some research for a different project, and your name kept popping up in, like, old Star Wars insiders of, like, hey, this fan that found Endor, or all these, all these things that you were doing on your own, kind of making the movies tangible for yourself. What What drove that? How did you kind of intersect that that love of movie making with with these movies yeah i think it's an interesting question i mean i guess definitely collecting is always there with it you know and i think uh the star wars star wars the toys were such a big part of it i mean this is not a new story you've heard many people talk about this but it's like kids who love star wars love the star wars toys it was a great toy line and everybody was kind of into it and i guess just as you get a little older Instead of buying the toys to play with, you're still buying them, but you're buying them to collect them now. Right. So the collecting thing was always there. And, you know, I got on the Internet 
very early in like the early 90s or whatever when I was I was pretty young I just had access to it and the, the you know one of the most interesting things for me about the internet was the potential to go and find collectibles and so there were like groups where people were trading old Kenner Star Wars toys which you couldn't really get anywhere else I mean even even sort of pre-eBay or maybe right at the dawn of eBay and and so the internet is like an access as an access point to go and buy Star Wars stuff uh, as silly as it sounds was like a big <laughs> thing for me at that time and and then you know for me, the the, the fan and the interest was to sort of just like keep connecting with it and find other ways to connect it. And I would say I always took inspiration from other people. Like I got interested in filming locations because I found uh, websites, you know, and yeah. there, there's a website that Gus Lopez set up yeah. called Star Wars Traveler. Gus, obviously a very central figure in all things Star Wars fandom. Yeah. And, you know, I met Gus at some point in the 90s, met him online. And uh, he had this website, the Star Wars Traveler, where he had gone to Tunisia, which I thought was amazing. And there's another guy, Belgium or somewhere, that had gone out to Tunisia and posted a bunch of photos online. And David West Reynolds had done yeah. his thing. He had put his articles in the Insider and all that stuff I just thought was amazing, you know, and, and just wanted to kind of do similar things myself go on similar adventures and try to uh connect with these movies it's about connection and a little bit of treasure hunting you know just right. the hope like looking for the return of the jedi site it was always a hope that when you found it and you got to where the endor bunker was like almost a hope that it would still be there even though you right. knew it wouldn't but like oh there it is the foundation or oh there's the side panel sitting right over there whatever it might be you know yeah. and so i just really loved that sort of archaeological side of it and it manifests itself in several different ways with collecting and the filming location things and, and later, you know, the, the book projects that I was able to get involved with yeah. all that. It's just about like a deeper appreciation and understanding and connection with these movies. Yeah, it really is. Even in a, a small capacity, it was in London and we were walking with a few friends and then I kind of stopped for a moment. And I'm like, oh, this is from Andor. Like we're at the Imperial Security Bureau. It was like, oh, like it, it makes it feel almost like real in a very yeah. a very odd way did did that kind of search for for the tangible for the connection is that what led you to prop collecting were you doing prop collecting in any capacity before prop store or how did that kind of well so yeah i mean i got into prop collecting on my own just out of my own interest it was really an evolution from the toys you know it was like mm -hmm. toys took me to replica props found out that the graphlex flash unit is what they made the lightsaber handle out of and then had to have one of those and then the next sort of step in evolution from replica props is to try to get real props and so some of the first real props i ever bought were like dog tags from starship troopers mm -hmm. and, and it was probably around the time of starship troopers so like 97 or 98 which was sort of what i could afford at the time and you know i didn't really have access or resources to go after star wars pieces at that time but just to get any part of a real movie was something special and interesting you know um and, and then I guess with Star Wars, I kind of got started just by finding little bits and pieces at the filming locations. So like mm -hmm. I went to Tunisia for the first time in 2001 and there was there was stuff there. I mean, yeah. you've seen it online. It's just people found crate dragon bones and we found pieces of the, the flying wing from Raiders and just, you know, ultimately kind of scraps more than things like stormtrooper helmets or anything. But, you know, real it's stuff real, from yeah. the movies, which was which was amazing. And. Uh, you know, it impressed me then, impresses me now. And, and it, it is that tangible side of it where it's just like, God, it's something that you just, you, you, you can't see any other way, if that makes sense. Like, right. you, you're never going to know how they made those Stormtrooper helmets until you kind of hold one in your hands, you know? Yeah. It's it's almost emotional, like seeing, seeing it in person. It's a very different, um, even at the prop store booth, 
again, talking about London, and I kind of turned the corner and there is, that was the Leia gown, I think, you had mm. displayed. Mm-hmm. And you, you see how small it is, you see how small she was, and it's like almost like a, emotional experience to kind of be even close to something that you just kind of take for granted or... Definitely. I mean, we see that all the time when we put stuff kind of on display. It's amazing the emotional reaction that stirs up in people. And it really is, it's like these things live in your soul, you know, and then you get to see them in the flesh. And uh, just amazing that, A, A, it exists, maybe amazing on some level that it's it's out there in the wild, you know, it's privately owned. It's not just in a museum or a collection where no one has access to it. Um, You know, when I look at the evolution of prop collecting and prop store as part of that, it's really amazing all the content that is out there and available and part of private collections today. You know, I think back to like finding the pieces in Tunisia. We were so amazed to have a little bit of the crate dragon bone, just anything, just something, right. you know, as scrappy as it was. And you, you contrast that against something like the Princess Leia dress or let's say coming up in this auction, the Anthony Daniels collection with like his personal C-3PO helmet, you know, from from year one of Star Wars 1976 or the TIE fighter pilot helmet, which is screen mash. And it's just like these amazing pieces that are really significant parts of the movie that, that now are out there in the wild. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. It really is. And I mean, they, we'll talk more about it later, but like that Anthony Daniels collection is history in itself and how it's compiled and how it's showcased that catalog. I spent an hour going through it. Cause it really is like a book, a, you know, thing on its own, even without bidding on it, even without buying anything it's like oh like all this combined you can kind of see the trajectory of his career what was important Mm -hmm. to him as an actor as a person and i think that's that adds so many different elements to star wars beyond just a wikipedia page or something like that and i think that's also part of what makes prop stores so fascinating to me is there's a lot of props and collectibles and things out there but how it's curated and how it's told i think is very interesting to me and I guess, how did your involvement with PropStore begin? What has that journey been like for you? How has that company grown? Sure. Yeah. So I met Stephen Lane, who founded PropStore. I met him in 2004. Um, Stephen started PropStore in 1998 uh, in the UK. You know, Stephen's English. So he, he was living there, based there, founded it probably as one of the very first companies trading full time in movie memorabilia. You know, not, not really posters, but things like props, costumes, uh, production artifacts, artwork, scripts, you know, the, the real things used in the making of the films. Um, and and so I met him in 2004. I had actually gone to the UK to pick up a C-3PO leg and foot that I had found on eBay. They're from Empire Strikes Back where he gets blown apart. Yeah. Um, I don't have them anymore. They're with the collector buddy of mine now. But great, great pieces turned up on eBay. They were with the family of a crew member. And uh, it, it, the listing had kind of gone unnoticed on eBay. So they hadn't sold. And then I was able to work out a deal after I went actually went over to pick them up my first time ever going to, to England uh, in 2004. And I got to go out to prop store. I met Steve and I saw the setup there, the operation, all the things that they had um, and that they were working on. And, and they had actually just just a, maybe a year or so earlier, they had brought in the entirety of the Stuart Freeborn collection, yeah. which is one of the big early deals for prop store of London. They basically got a phone call one day out of the blue from a gentleman who said, my name's Stuart Freeborn. I did, you know, makeup and and masks and things for movies for years. And basically the phone call was, we're downsizing out of a house that we've lived in for many, many years. And we've got some old plaster heads and things. And we thought you might be interested rather than us throwing them away. And I think <laughs> I, this is this is all pre-me. So I only sure, know these sure. stories secondhand. I wasn't involved with any of these. But the stories go that basically they thought they were going down to pick up some plaster life casts. And they wound up spending something like three or four weeks 
helping Stuart Freeborn completely clear his house, during which time they found things like, you know, the Greedo mask and uh, just amazing things, Crazy, uh, you know, yeah. unbelievable things, Yoda heads, original Yoda skins and paperwork, call sheets, drawings, artwork, uh, 2001, Superman, on and on and on and on, amazing archive of, of material there. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. That that was sort of one of the, I, I guess what that speaks to is just how, how impressed I was with Prop Store and everything that was going on there at the time, how exciting it was to see them finding these little bits of movie history. And again, if you contrast that against something like the bits of set that I had found in Tunisia, now you're talking about like, wow, real hero pieces, masks and such from the movie. It, it, it was just uh, it was just overwhelming. You know, it was, it was really, as a collector, you were blown away by it. And so I was, you know, immediately interested. I stayed in touch with Stephen for a few more years. I finished up college at the end of 2005. I, I grew up in Maryland, went to college in Maryland, and then really just started talking to Stephen about the possibility of working with him full time. At some point, I was actually going to move to the UK and work with the prop store team over there. And then we figured out as we explored it more that it was just more interesting, more potential to move to Los Angeles and open the office of prop store here, which was something that had been on Steven's radar for quite a while anyway. So that was what we did. You know, I moved West to California. We opened the U S prop store around June of 2007 mm -hmm. and, you know, we got a small facility. We started looking for content, just, just very humble beginnings. You know, it was really just me, maybe me and one or two other people for, for a good while. And of course, today we have something like 40 to 45 people here in the U S and we have another 25 or 30 in the UK. So it's really, you know, the growth of Prop Store, I think, has been pretty special, but also the growth of, of the collecting field, you know, and, and Prop Store couldn't have grown without the field growing. And as more and more people have become interested in collecting this content, Prop Store's had that opportunity to, to continue to grow as well and to get involved, involved with all, all sorts of different things. You know, it's, it's not just treasure hunting for Star Wars pieces, although we do love that side of it. It's also working with a lot of studios and production companies today on whatever their latest film or television show is and putting those auctions together for for fans of those properties. Yeah, I guess I guess let's talk a little bit about the prop store growth itself because it it is interesting where where Star Wars for a long time was overseas, right? And I guess you had the Australia productions as well, but London was always and the UK was always a huge huge avenue for Star Wars, and it's only really recently that that there's been a lot more Star Wars US filming, and I wonder if that's impacted how y'all are able to get things, I guess I'm always curious about the actual sourcing and then the growth of that sourcing. I think I was actually able to talk to Stephen briefly and we were talking a little bit about how the prequels have really expanded in terms of the collectors now coming into their own, right? Like I, a little less than 10 years younger than you. And so I kind of grew up with the prequels. And so there's part of me mm -hmm. that I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, I obviously would love something from the OT, but you know, a, a prequel lightsaber or something like that is a very interesting component, especially because the behind the scenes documentaries and DVDs for those movies were even almost more involved at, at times than some of the original trilogy stuff. And so how have you seen like that collector growth? Have you seen the prop growth? And where do you think, this is a long question now, but where do you think the industry is kind of uh, heading towards in terms of more and more people coming into the fold? Yeah, man, I think the really interesting thing about the prequels is just the to, to watch their journey and the route that they've taken as far as the way the fandom views the prequels and essentially what's happened is they've matured you know and so i think for a long time there was a sense amongst older star wars fans kind of the first generation that 
that they weren't quite as satisfactory as you wanted them to be, that somehow they just weren't the originals. And you might feel differently about that if, if you sort of saw them at a younger age. But ge generally, that was the perception from older Star Wars fans. And, and look, some people say that about Return of the Jedi. You know, for me, Return of the Jedi is a masterpiece. I can't fault it. But there is there's that first wave of people who are maybe like 16 years old or older or something by the time they saw Return of the Jedi who go like, it's awful. What were all those Ewoks and such? You know, I'm not in that camp. For me, it's, it's wonderful. And so everybody kind of has their own point of view on it. But I think it's just as time's gone on, and people have looked at the prequels. You know, I, I look at something like the the gap of time between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace. It's like there's only there's only 14 years after Jedi was released that they started production in earnest. You know, shooting on Phantom Menace in '97, and 14 years compared to where we're at now. It's like it's not that long of a time. So from that perspective, Phantom Menace sort of sits closer to Return of the Jedi than it does to like right. whatever they're coming out with now, Book of Boba Fett or something, where we're right. we're however many years down from it. So, you know, I think on the, to tie it back to collecting, I think for a long time there just wasn't a lot of interest in prequel material because everybody took a more purist view that well, I want stuff from the original trilogy. But I do think that that's come around now and we're what what are we almost 25 years past phantom menace and, yeah. I, and i just think that it has matured now and people look back at it and, and there's you know some different lenses you could put on it you, you can kind of go well it's george lucas star wars you know and he only did six and it's three of the six so yeah. it's actually it's, it's pretty special in its own right and and we've seen that translate to collecting you know we, we, we see people come in who go well i want a, a prequel lightsaber right. you know and there are a number of prequel lightsabers floating out around out there but they're great pieces i mean it's like what, what better prop to have from a star Wars movie than a lightsaber, uh, especially the ones with the, with the blades on them that they actually right, the, fought uh, with. Yeah. So you know, a lot of interest in the prequels, and, and and we continue to see new people stepping in to the collecting market all the time. You know, people looking for original trilogy prequels and probably even people looking for content from the new shows. There isn't very much out there from the new right. shows because the, the productions are ongoing. Um, a lot of it is is assets that that Disney Lucasfilm is holding on to and will reuse again in the, in the future. There are some things that are out there because they're like rental pieces that have gone into the production on rentals and have been sold. So we've sold a few Stormtrooper costumes, for example, from The Mandalorian. And interest in those has been pretty high. Yeah. Um, or the but, droids, but, the astromech units, I remember. That's right, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. And those, I think, have been primarily from the sequel films that were made in the UK. But we've probably sold three, four, maybe five of those now. And a lot of interest in those, again, because content is pretty limited from these more recent productions. If you are a fan of them and you can get something significant like a droid, you know, it's a it's a pretty great piece. It, it'll be interesting to see where the future goes. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you, you said 25 years since Phantom Menace. In 25 years, the kids that grew up with the Force Awakens, or even you're seeing it right now with it's interesting to me. To I love everything. I've seen everything. I I got I got very lucky where special editions came out when I was five, so mm -hmm. I was able to go right into special editions and then right into the prequels, and it was like, oh yes, all of this is the same. Yeah. So that was very lucky yeah. for me. But then you have the kids that grew up with CG Clone Wars, and that's mm -hmm. their that's their like thing, and so they care about the clones more than anything, which is very. Yeah. I, that's kind of that next iteration. Like where where are people going to be collecting and what's going to be available is, is very interesting to me and just how these generations sort of. Yeah. I mean, I think what you can say for sure is like now that Disney owns it, has control of it, it's in the theme parks, et cetera, it's not going anywhere, right. you know? And, and I don't know that there was ever a huge risk that people were just going to forget about it. But I think that the fact that it's going to be so active and like the content that's coming out means that 
it's just going to be in the in the public eye in a way that maybe some other franchises like I don't know I mean even Indiana Jones it's just it's 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 not it's not as prominent as Star Wars you know no for sure I would love to take a step back just briefly because you know we're talking about your work with Prop Store but I think also your work within the behind the scenes community especially with the two books the Macquarie book and the costumes book uh, both fascinating the Macquarie book. I mean, obviously that was a big project, and but it's just, I cannot believe that exists. A and B and how lovingly it's told and and everything that that is there. Um, how did you get involved with both of those projects, and where did you kind of see the major additions to this knowledge um, come from? Yeah, I mean the, the history of the Macquarie book. I guess it's interesting to tie back to some of the other points. It's like I saw Gus Lopez going to filming locations, so I wanted to go to filming locations. I saw Stephen Lane doing prop stores, so I wanted to be part of that. With the books, I saw Jonathan Rinsler making these great, wonderful making up books, and I just thought, like, God, this is fantastic. I want to be part of that, you know. And when I had gone on some of my own little adventures to filming locations, or gone to meet cast and crew members, interviewed people, wrote them letters, whatever. It was sort of always in the back of my head that like, oh, maybe it could be a book, but I wasn't really organized enough or in a position to turn that into a reality. And then, you know, 2007, 30th anniversary of Star Wars, Rinsler's book, The Making of Star Wars comes out. And I just thought like, God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It's more in one place on Star Wars, you know, than than anything. Uh, having devoured all of the magazine articles and documentaries and everything else for so long, to have it kind of all there was just really special. Um, and I think I met Jonathan Rinsler maybe at San Diego Comic-Con or may maybe someone introduced us, um, but I met him couple of years after that book came out when he was working on the empire book and i said well look i found some materials just in my own research photographs things like that maybe you could use them for the book and we started talking he said oh great send me what you have i'd love to look at it he put a couple of pictures in and then the empire book came out and he said well next i'm going to do uh return of the jedi and i said well i'd love to be you know if i could do anything to help you just let me know and he said well i could really use an assistant mm -hmm. if you want to be my assistant i need people to like scan things for me and just try to look stuff up and and etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and he said you know there's no money to pay you anything but if you're interested in being part of it you can be my assistant on it and so that was how i got started and i think i do have a credit on that making return of the jedi book as a research assistant um howard kazanjan who we talked about earlier he was somebody that i had met just in my own research and letter writing and such and so i knew howard had a bunch of file boxes filled with jedi paperwork and schedules and memos and things like that howard let me go through them and kind of quarterback those out to jonathan rinsler to supplement all the stuff that he was getting out of the lucasfilm archive at the time um, and and I, I I guess I would say I just assisted him as as needed throughout that uh, making of Jedi book. And then when that wrapped up, he said, "Look, we have more projects on the slate." And he basically called me out of the blue one day and said, "We've been talking about a book about uh, costumes, the costumes of Star Wars." He said, "I know you're really interested in costumes and props because of all your work at Prop Store. Maybe you want to write this one," which was like <laughs> you know the golden offer. Yeah. And I wasn't really qualified for it. I hadn't really written anything aside from maybe like a article for star wars insider magazine or something so you know i was incredibly excited and it was just a, a great opportunity you know it, it got me into skywalker ranch where i'd never been before it got me into the archives at skywalker ranch we spent days and days there researching looking at the content meeting with the costume designers uh you know aggie rogers came out to the ranch and looked at stuff with us That's crazy I got connected with Nilo, who's amazing. I don't know if you've ever talked to him, but just an amazing, amazing guy. I got to spend long hours talking to Nilo about 
everything to do with the design of Star Wars and those costumes. And of course, John Mallow in the UK, mm-hmm. who, you know, John was older at this point, And so his memory wasn't quite, quite as sharp, but he is still an incredibly significant guy yeah. in, you know, the contribution that he made to those movies. And, and I think the really interesting thing about the John Mallow story is just that he was there in the beginning of the first one. And in the beginning of the first one, it was like a small group of people with George Lucas, just working it out in a very direct manner as to what all these movies were going to look like, what they were going to be. And that changed dramatically on Empire and Jedi, just a lot more layers of, of people involved. Um, but fantastic project, wonderful experience for me, one of the you know great experiences of my working life. And then that just flowed into the Ralph McQuarrie book where he said, look, the next book is we want to do something definitive on Ralph McQuarrie. Do you want to be involved with that one? And I didn't feel like I knew that much about Ralph McQuarrie. You know, I knew the basics, but um, I was just, I don't know. It, it was clear the scope of it was different. And so I brought in my friend, uh, Dave Mandel, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who's sort of in and around this Star Wars fandom and collecting community as well. He knew a lot about McQuarrie. He was a longtime McQuarrie fan and collector. And Dave knew Wade LaJose. I think I knew Wade a little bit as well, but not, not, not quite like Dave did. And Wade actually had a relationship with Ralph going back to the 90s. Wade was like always a student of Ralph's and studying Ralph's and such. So you know, the three of us together felt like a better team to try to tackle this much larger project. Um, And then we got to go and do that and and had a lot of fun in the process. And we were really thrilled with with that end product and really fortunate that Abrams, the publisher, got behind it, supported it. They wanted to make it all it could be. They went for the idea of two volumes, 800 pages and, you know, a pretty expensive retail price point, which is what made the end product so special, you know? Yeah. And it really, I mean, you have the Rinsler trilogy is 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 the the grail like that is the ultimate making of Star Wars book maybe besides um, uh, the making of Empire book from from eighty, um, but that Ralph McQuarrie book I feel like might be the most quoted and used especially like we're talking about the new movies and stuff but like you see it in the background of every behind the scenes documentary for these new movies and shows like it is it is a reference that people keep pulling from because it is so definitive and so important i guess it was almost like what one of the takeaways was i think everybody knew that ralph was important and everybody knew that he designed some of the core stuff like what darth vader looks like and everybody knew that he was prolific with his work but i don't know that anybody including us quite realized just the depths of how much stuff he did until we tried to put it all into one book and until we went through the flat files at the ranch and looked at the map paintings and looked at the storyboards and looked at everything and it was just like oh my god how much work did this one guy do how many drawings are there and then when you start to kind of organize them and put them together because obviously there were books like art of star wars in the past that that kind of had them in there but they just not presented in the same way and this was another thing that came from rinsler it was really his directive it was like the book have to be scholarly so they have to be organized and you have to kind of present it in a way that it's going to unfold and tell the story of ralph mccrory designing star wars um and so when you got it all together and you saw that like you know it'd be fascinating in both ways it'd be fascinating a that there were only eight drawings of darth vader i'm making that number up but there weren't very many drawings of darth vader that actually established the design and then on the flip side on empire there were 300 drawings of like cloud city citizens and you're just like (laughs) it's just sort of amazing you know where they spent where they had time to spend and where they didn't have time to spend and ultimately just amazing this one guy's contribution to the, the visual look of it you know and how much work he did and i think that's why the book is interesting to people why it's been successful 
it's it's really it's about the strengths of McCory and his work and the designs, you know, and, and it was really just for us. All we had to do was get them organized and into one place to make it apparent how great he was, you know. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating to me. Again, you cannot see the shelf below, but the heavy books, the ones that aren't, you know, the heavy books are all in one long line. It's every Rensselaer. It's all, you know, everything. But that there's still stuff to mine is fascinating to me, right? We're 45 years out from mm. Star Wars and there's still new yeah, things yeah. that are that are coming. And even, I mean, that Howard book that we talked about two years ago, um, A, for his contributions, but also getting the Marsha side of things written yeah. down. And because and, that is what's missing from that first Rensselaer book, right? It is, yeah, true. It is the Marsha. And so even now, still getting to learn and still getting to kind of poke at it is is fascinating and i think there's not that many properties you can do that with right there, not not many can stand the test like that yeah no that's right and i mean I, th I think the interest has always been there and there's you know there's if you look back even into the era of the 70s and such there were always good books being done like the art of star wars and then it carried on in the 90s with things like from star wars to indiana jones the best of the archives um they were kind of keepers of the torch at different Period. So like David West Reynolds, big guy in the 1990s who was driving some of those books, like the visual dictionaries and stuff. Uh, Don B is one of the archivists, heavily involved with a lot of those projects. And then there's kind of the, the era after that is like the Rinsler era. And he was able to kick it up even further and go, you know, we're not only going to do making of, but we're going to do storyboards. We're going to do costumes. We're going to do blueprints. We're going to do sounds. We're going to analyze all these different elements of Star Wars. And, you know, we had a lot of talks with Jonathan about what else we might do? We, we always really wanted to do a book on the props of Star Wars, so hand props, lightsabers, guns, droids, all that sort of thing. Um, and sadly never came to fruition. The, the art of Joe Johnston was also kicked about, you know, for a long time and in pretty serious fashion. I think, you know, there was a vision that after the Macquarie book, there would be the Joe Johnston book that would be every piece of work Joe Johnston ever did. And it just, it just never materialized. And obviously eventually Rinsler, you know, left Lucasfilm and very tragically passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but his, his, his legacy with those books, I think is, is strong. And I think it's some of the best archival behind the scenes content that's ever been done on, on any film any, yeah. anywhere, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and then, and then he, when he left Lucasfilm I was like, what if I did this for, Alien and, you know, for another, it's Planet of the Apes, like just seminal, seminal pieces for all of them. And again, they're all behind me. And he, I mean, yeah. not to, the listeners are very aware of how I feel about Rinsler and, and how, how important he is. And he was, he might have been the first person I ever reached out to for this show five, six years ago. And he responded and came on and yeah. gave me advice and uh, was always a sounding board if I had questions or, or, or needed directions to go for research. And he is kind of, he is the 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 guidebook the inspiration the blueprint and mm. um and I, I think star wars fans will always be in his debt because cataloging it and chronicling it and, and then moving into to prop store but but then being able to hold all of that beyond a book i think again not a lot of movies and, and tv shows command that level of respect and and deep dive and he kind of paved the way to, like you said scholarly i think this is all yeah. very and I, and I do think the prop store kind of ties into it in that, like, okay, let's look at this Anthony Daniels collection. Obviously, there's a, the C-3PO helmet. It's a wonderful treasure. It's a museum-quality piece for the future. But when you go through the, the Daniels booklet, and I have it right here, there's also all this um, ephemera, documentation, paperwork, 
photographs, just materials from that kind of tells the story of his journey with Star Wars. And so if you're somebody like yourself or, or myself who really loves this stuff and you've already read all the Rinsler books, it's like, where do you go next? Well, you can actually go into the prop store catalogs and you can see Anthony Daniels' handwritten notes on his scripts and you can sit there and study them and you, right. you can look at the dates on the, uh, the ADR sheets or whatever it might be. It's like the next level of detail that that any fan might want is is there you know and uh there's only a few films or franchises ultimately that would ever command that level of interest but certainly the star wars original trilogy is is one of them um and so it continues to be a pleasure for us to be able to work with this content present this content and bring these things to the to the surface that haven't been seen before you know just stuff like going through anthony daniels boxes and finding his calendar page from 1975 or 76 where he's noted that he's going for a meeting with george lucas for the first time and it's like this really kind of humble piece of paper this handwritten note on it yeah. that is ultimately incredibly significant you know it changes his life changes like it really um, I cannot understate how how beautiful this catalog is. Like I I have it up with the PDF at least. I'm just like okay, yep, this is uh, again. Are you talking about something that belongs on on the shelf? Like this is also a piece of, of movie history, and you put that next to his autobiography, and you have a pretty complete look. Yeah. at what he's done for yeah, for movies. Definitely. I do. I want to transition us a, a little bit, and we can talk about this auction specifically, but also just prop collecting in general, because I think it's an interesting conversation. We were talking a little bit before we started recording. I'm I'm always very partial to cast and crew items and collectibles of, of that ilk, and even going to the regal robot of it all. But but prop collecting and and the things that have actually made a movie happen, I think are they're not unsung, but I do think that they have a very interesting place among a potential collection, especially someone that is, but but it is uh, it is it is part of a larger ecosystem, and there's part of me that I mean I've stopped collecting action figures. Because I don't need to spend that amount of money a month when I can instead buy, you know, something that has directly impacted a movie that I love. And I'd be curious your thoughts on especially someone coming in to a prop world. I think Prop Store has very interesting examples of relatively inexpensive items that you can get in. The call sheets are a great example of that. Like what what have you seen in terms of that growth, in terms of entry-level collectors and how how do you recommend people kind of go about starting a collection or even considering starting a yeah it's a good question i mean I, I guess you know we have to be upfront about the fact that there is a price barrier involved with a lot of these you know star wars props and costumes and collectibles and such especially on the high end you know because of the scarcity because of the demand because of the interest level the economics are just such that they can get very very expensive so it can be daunting to step into props as a collecting field. But I think the flip side is because there is interest and appetite at all budget levels, these other types of pieces are coming out and, and becoming available and sort of turning into collectibles like call sheets where somebody would say, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I only have a couple of hundred dollars to spend. What can I get? It's like, well, you can probably get something like a call sheet, which was actually issued at Elstree Studios on the day. It's a vintage document. Somebody used it to understand what their duties of that production day were. Um, and, and, and I guess that's been just one of the great things about uh, watching the, the collecting evolve as well is 
it's not just stormtrooper helmets that people are interested in. It is all this ephemera, all this production stuff. And every artifact has its own little story. So it gives you another glimpse into the making of those films. I love all that stuff myself. I love production paperwork. I love photographs that haven't been seen. Um, you know, sometimes we have things that are basically just like personal crew member photos. There's some in the in the Daniels collection. It's just him having a little snapshot camera and taking pictures. You know, the 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 image that's on the cover of the Daniels booklet is basically like he took a camera to the studio one day to get some pictures of himself in the suit. Those pictures have never been seen anywhere. They've been in his boxes yeah. for four decades, three and a half decades, you know, and, and and now they're out there for people to see and somebody's going to get to own the originals of those. So everything has its connection to the production process. And if, if you're a fan of it, if you're somebody like us who loves these making of books and such, everything is has an element of fascination to it, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think, you know, we continue to to bring especially Star Wars content to market at various price points, you know, starting relatively inexpensively at, at a couple hundred all the way up to the hundreds of thousands. And and I think it just it, it gives collectors an opportunity to to get involved. You know, and what we see a lot is collectors, they start at one price point, they might only have $100 to spend a day, but they might come back in a couple of years and spend $1,000. And just, you know, as they get more comfortable with collecting, maybe they're career trajectory, whatever it may be, they're spending more money over time and they're upgrading their collection over time. Sometimes people resell things. You know, sometimes they buy at one price point, hold it for a year or two, resell at a higher price point. Not that you can guarantee that's going to happen, but sometimes it will. And then they reinvest that into whatever the next piece is. So collecting is like a very yeah. fluid, organic thing. You may have done some of that yourself just with selling toys or yeah. replicas or whatever, you know, whatever you may be selling to fund the next acquisition. It's kind of like, you know, you can't necessarily have anything you want, but if you're willing to shift things around, you may be able to have some of the things that you want, you know? And I mean, that goes back to, would you rather have 10 action figures or would you have mm -hmm. one, uh, you know, something that was yeah. used in a movie? And so, again, there's an interesting shift to it all where I, I have significantly downsized a lot of the, the extra stuff. And I've mainly focused on, as you can see, books behind me, and that's like... Very, I'm very serious about it, especially the vintage stuff and, you know, being kind of as, as complete as possible. But then on the flip side is original art uh, that is like kind of a whole mm. other aspect. And I think the Nilo auction from a few years ago was maybe my foray into it where I was like, oh, for $300, I got a beautiful Tauntaun running in the snow Nilo sketch, which is I was like, oh, all of a sudden, like it's very tangible. And, so then it's, and I always tell people the best thing you can spend $100 on it's just like a really cool Ewoks or droids animation mm. cell because something that was yeah. used in Star Wars, you can get really, you know, beautiful yeah. kind of quirky yeah. stuff. Yeah. And then you kind of can escalate from there. And I think, again, not to belabor a point, but I think there's a lot out there for people to to kind of experiment with and, and, and see and not to get more competitors on my eBay safe searches. But like there is there is a lot of stuff out there that is pretty cheap and pretty affordable that was like either crew issued or production made it, it, totally i mean i'm flipping through our catalog as we're talking here Th things that stand out to me are like the elstree studios makeup department door sign from a new hope which is you know it starts at a thousand pounds and it's like it's got the yeah. rapport triangle stickers on it you know that is that is yep. the uh, alec guinness probably walked through that door with that sign on it every day you know it's a total yep. piece of history and it's however many years old now it's 46 years old 47 years old 
and it's still there and it's a thousand pounds it's like it's you know it's for me there's 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 good value in that it's it's really you know, yeah. you are capturing something that is truly like from the start of it all it's tangible it's you know exactly what it is it's not like it's total obscurity and it, and, and again, it starts with a thousand pounds. Just that, that for me is like the ideal sort of entry level collector piece. And look, not everybody's into the production side of things. Some people, they really want something that's on camera. And I get that too. And I think, you know, there are good on camera starter pieces as well. Like we always think of the Death Star surface pieces. There's enough of those around. Sure. You can generally pick up a nice three inch by three inch example for maybe something like 1500 or a couple grand. Um, which I realize is 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 not inexpensive either, but it, you know it, it is accessible if if people really want to to get there for it. And, and again, it's part of year one of Star Wars. You know, it's it's part of the origins of it all. So yeah. for me, infinitely more interesting than a stack of action figures, no matter how big the stack may be. Right. You know, if you even took a step back from that, if you're like, if you don't even want the sign and you just want the mm -hmm. stickers, like I think even the the, the Kurt stickers, are right? Be, like that's. Again, you talk right. about history. And they're probably and available for whatever. You probably get one for $150. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. They're accessible, sir. And those are like on the camera. Yeah. Like, you know, you can you can see the photos. Like yeah. You know, all, all to be said. Uh, it's all very exciting. And as you, I I am slowly diving in. My wife is pissed that I'm slowly diving in, but I am diving in um, into the actual into the actual crew of it all. And I'm excited to see where, where that goes for me, but. Was there anything that caught your eye in the current auction? Let me see. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, well, the, the, I mean, the big one, which is I will not be going for, and I mentioned in my email, I literally like had to put it down, but it was the shoe. It was the shoe from yeah. Return of the Jedi. That is yeah. truly so the, I mean, the shoe is <laughs> like, a great story. You know, the shoe was the shoe is a very famous old lore Star Wars story where Ken Ralston would talk about the fact that when they were doing Return of the Jedi, they were compositing so many different ships into the shots and so many different elements that they were just having fun with it. And at some point he took off his tennis shoe and filmed that and put it into a shot as an element. And for years, Star Wars fans kind of said like, where is the shoe in the movie? Has anybody seen it? Is it actually in there? And, you know, the shoe is actually pictured in the Rinsler making Return of the Jedi book because Howard had it. So they gave it to Howard as a gag gift right. when he was leaving Lucasfilm after Return of the Jedi. They wrapped it up and presented it to him. And there's actually a photo. I don't know. I think we, it may be in the online listing now, but there is a photo of Howard getting the shoe as a gift mm -hmm. from Tom Smith, the general manager of ILM, at like a, a party at Skywalker Ranch back in the day. And Howard's had it ever since. Um, and they kind of did it. They did it up like they 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 presented some of the model miniatures that they gave to folks as crew gifts, where they put it on a black plexiglass base with the film logo right. on it, and it's signed from Tom Smith, who's the head of ILM. It says something like to Howard from all of us at ILM, and it's just a tennis shoe. It's a tennis shoe with a Star Wars <laughs> shoelace on it. Uh, but Howard's yeah. had it, and and it has some documents with it, like this uh, storyboard that calls out the Rebel shoe, and it has a photograph of a shot where there's something, a little gray blob circled, saying this is the shoe. But there's actually what I would say a more compelling argument uh, that a YouTube creator has come up with that uh, that the shoe is actually a different <laughs> ship in one of those shots and if, when you go look at it it's like well that does look a lot like uh -huh. a shoe so i can't tell you for certain that it's one element or the other right. but certainly the story of the rebel shoe is part of old star wars lore and it's fascinating to see the shoe itself and, and by the way what other movie besides star wars is there going to be a <laughs> rebel shoe and and it, i don't know I, I forget what it's estimated at but like again can you imagine any other movie the like, spaceship. Oh, yeah, here's a, yeah. A shoe yeah but from... just a great story and a, and a story that actually it's a lot so of star funny. wars fans know so it's it's a it's a fun piece yeah. to have that one in the auction as well
Well, I mean, again, I really appreciate this time, and I'm very excited to see how this auction goes and all the Anthony Daniel pieces, and we'll see what I I, I probably even shouldn't say if I'm going for anything because then right, I don't get, tip people off, yeah, sniped or something. Yeah, right, exactly. Keep your people, cards I, I, I on Twitter, I uh, I have a thing called "Don't let me buy this," and it's always I always just post on eBay, like, or I post a screenshot from eBay. I'm like, hey, don't let me buy this very expensive, stupid thing um, that I found. Uh, but I learned my lesson, which was I posted – actually, uh, it's a Indiana Jones stunt spectacular pennant from Disney World from, you know, the early 90s. Yeah. And I posted it. I was like, don't let me buy this. And then someone bought it. Okay. And and then I learned to never post what I right. actually want. You're bringing so I only, exposure to cool I only post I only post, like, the, the weird, crazy stuff. Yeah. That or I'm you can post after. Post after right. you win. Well, yeah. So, yeah that's, uh, when, once it's delivered, then, then yeah. people are very – they're hyper aware of what I'm, yeah. what I'm buying. Like, I just got um, – this Colt 45 Billy D. Williams, there you, go. you know, and yep. you're like, okay, like again, cool. but do I need to it's spend that part. money or should I buy the, the shoe? Right. So yeah. You, it's, yeah. uh, these are questions. Yeah. These are, these are enormous questions that again, my wife hates me asking, but I will <laughs> ask them. Well, Brandon, thank you for your time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, thanks for helping to spread the auction word. It's it's November 9th, 12th at propstore.com. Um, of course, the auction's live from London, but people can participate online or via telephone from anywhere in the world. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, I think Anthony Daniels himself is actually going to be at the auction oh, at fun. day one in, in the UK, I think. I'm not sure if that's confirmed, but I, I hope he'll be there. And it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and also, I mean, even if you're not bidding... I just put it on while I'm at work, all the auctions, right? Because it's like the little live stream and the little guy yeah. talking. You know, oh, this, like it is, it is kind of exhilarating in its own way. so much again to Brandon for coming on the show and talking about the art of collecting and the importance of archiving and researching. The Prop Store auction featuring the Anthony Daniels collection will be from November 9th through 12th and the full items can be viewed at PropStore.com. Do not bid against me. We have a few more episodes in the works including my conversation with Judy Elkins and next week's chat with returning legend Tom Spina. If you're enjoying the show please hit the Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these episodes and leave us a 5 star rating and review. That's all for now. Until next episode stay tuned Use that five-star review. May the force be with you.